0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dr. Danya Koja, an emergency physician in somewhere in the United States, mostly.
1: And this is Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland.
0: And today we're going to be talking about the Critical Decisions publication, the March 2022 issue. And if you don't know what Critical Decisions is, what are you waiting for? Critical Decisions is ASEP's official SAME publication. Each month, we talk about two lessons and cover the critical decisions regarding them. Whether they're bread and butter emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge, we talk about them.
1: There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical EKG, critical procedure, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review.
0: So for our first lesson of the day, we have all in vain, cerebral venous thrombosis. Thank you to Drs. of Zafalasi and Safe Izzy for writing this article. And we are today incredibly lucky to have with us the first author, Dr. Reem. Welcome, Reem. First of all, we're very grateful to have you here.
2: And I would love to know, what made you decide to write about cerebral venous thrombosis? Wendy and Danielle, thank you for having me on the podcast. I was interested in learning more about the condition, as it's a condition that can be easily overlooked and it requires a high degree of clinical suspicion to diagnose. And we all know that early diagnosis and management can significantly improve outcomes, and any delays in diagnosis can result in a significantly higher rate of complications, disabilities, or even death. Well, death is usually
0: a really good reason for us to want to learn how to do something and avoid the death.
2: That's very true. So how common is it really? Well, it's an uncommon cause of cerebrovascular disease. It accounts for about 1% of all strokes in adults. But the incidence of this condition is around 50 million cases per year.
0: What kind of risk factors predispose patients to develop cerebral venous thrombosis?
2: Well, risk factors play an important role in the development of this condition. One or more identifiable risk factor is found in over 85% of cases. You can think of risk factors that lead to CBT as the same risk factors that lead to venous thromboembolism, most of which could be described by the Virchow triad, so endothelial injury, blood stasis, and hypercoagulability. Some common risk factors are mentioned in Table 1 in the article, and examples would include thrombophilias, which can be either genetic or acquired and can be detected in up to 34% of cases.
1: You mentioned
2: hypercoagulable states, so I think of malignancies. Is that a risk factor? Cancer is a commonly known risk factor for venous thrombosis, such as DVTs and PEs. It's also the most common risk factor for CBT in adults over the age of 55. It's actually found in one in every four cases in that age group. Malignancies, especially hematological malignancies, are the precipitating factor for the development of CBT. This is likely due to the underlying hypercoagulable state, or chemotherapeutic agents such as tamoxifen. Malignancies can also lead to direct compression or the direct invasion of a cerebral sinus, which could lead to clot formation.
0: That sounds very scary. All right. So other than thinking of it in patients who have those risk factors that you
2: mentioned, what in their clinical presentation should make us suspect CBT? So CBT can present in a variety of ways. The patient's presentation can range anywhere from being completely asymptomatic or having non-specific symptoms, such as focal neuro deficits, all the way to being completely altered or in a coma. There are certain presentations that can make you suspect the condition. So let's say you've got a young patient that presents with a stroke, or a patient that comes in with a headache or a stroke with atypical features, such as seizures or altered mental status, or a patient with a stroke that crosses a typical arterial distribution. These are all features that could raise suspicion for CVT. Those are really good tips. What are some common symptoms of CVT? Well, a headache is the most common symptom. It generally indicates increased intracranial pressure, which is found in about 95% of patients. Other symptoms could include papilledema, visual changes, nausea, and the clinical presentation really does depend on the venous sinus that is involved. So let's say you've got cavernous sinus thrombosis. Patients can present with ocular chemosis, periorbital or forehead pain, as well as cranial nerve pulses involving the third, fourth, or even sixth cranial nerve. Focal neurodeficits can be seen in around 40% of patients, and that can present with either hemiparesis, sensory deficits, flu aphasia. And focal or generalized seizures can occur in, in up to 40% of patients with CVT.
0: Got it. So if a patient comes in with headache,
2: focal neurodeficits, they're high risk, we're thinking CVT. how do we diagnose this? Well, the diagnosis of this condition could be done with numerous different imaging modalities. So this could include a CT of the head, an MRI of the head, or even angiography. An MRV or CTV is the imaging modality of choice. In the past, angiography used to be the gold standard for the diagnosis of CBT. However, this has been largely replaced by MRIs and CTs due to the advancements in these imaging techniques. Today, angiography is rarely needed outside of endovascular therapy.
1: Are there any specific imaging findings that we should look for?
2: Definitely. So in thrombosis. <laughs> clot <collect> everywhere. <laughs> so, imaging could pick up direct signs of CBT by directly picking up the clot or by picking up imaging findings that could be associated with the condition. So, a lot of the time, patients get worked up with a non contrast CT of the head, which is widely used as the initial workup. However, it can only detect a clot in less than a third of cases. On a non contrast CT of the head, you can pick up hyperattenuation of the affected sinus. However, a negative non-contrast CT of the head cannot rule out the condition. So the majority of non-con head CTs detect indirect signs of CVT. This includes edema, an intracranial hemorrhage, hydrocephalus, or a venous infarct. If you pick up edema or a hemorrhage near a venous sinus, that should raise suspicion for the condition. In cases with high clinical suspicion for CVT, such as picking up hypertenuation within the sinus, a head scan with venography should be ordered. These studies can detect a thrombus by demonstrating the filling defect within the thrombosed
0: Got it. So you have a patient, you're thinking CVT because they have a headache, they have risk factors, and you got this um, CTV, and you realize, oh my gosh, they have CVT. All right, now what? I'm, I'm, I'll call Wendy. Personally, that's my answer <laughs> to everything that has anything to do with neuro. I'm like this sounds scary they're half clots they're not supposed to have clots she knows they're not supposed to have clots so what am i doing i mean i can't go in there
2: and take the clot out right what am i doing so the management of cbt includes anticoagulation as well as treatment of the underlying precipitating factor if it's identified as well as symptomatic management so anticoagulation is a cornerstone of the management of cbt it prevents clot propagation, facilitates recanalization of the sinus, as well as reduces the risk of formation of new thrombi. Its use is considered safe even in cases with a concomitant intracranial hemorrhage as a result of CBT. Evidence suggests that there is no increased risk of re-bleeding in this patient population. Patients are initially anticoagulated with heparin, and on the long run, they receive oral anticoagulation with warfarin. If there's a treatable underlying condition that's identified, such as dehydration or a perimeningeal infection, that should be treated promptly, and risk factors such as oral contraceptive therapy should be discontinued or addressed promptly to avoid prolongation of the prothrombotic state. Endovascular therapy, whether it's mechanical thrombectomy or catheter-directed thrombolysis, is indicated only in patients with continued neurological deterioration despite maximal medical therapy, or in patients with involvement of multiple venous sinuses or in those with continued propagation of thrombus. So you technically might actually go and get the clot out. So that was not a bad idea. I
1: think, as you mentioned, Reem, the most important portion of treatment is anticoagulation, and that definitely is what makes a lot of us all very hesitant and concerned initially, the thought of anticoagulating somebody with a bleed in their head when this is technically a venous infarct with related venous hemorrhage. And so treatment is treating the thrombosis.
0: Which is exactly why all of these people should literally be admitted to you, to the intensive care unit. No, no,
1: no, no, no. Not all yes, of yes, them. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. All <laughs> of them. All of them. There wouldn't be enough ICU beds for these people. <laughs> but Reem, how how should we decide in terms of, you know, where to admit a patient?
2: Well, due to the high risk of rapid decompensation in the acute phase, a lot of these patients need to be admitted to a unit where they get checked on regularly, whether it's a stroke unit or higher level of care, such as an ICU.
1: Well, thank you, Reem. That was a great overview of cerebral venous thrombosis.
2: What are some take-home points that you like our listeners to pay the most attention to? So patients with CBT can present with a wide variety of symptoms, so keep an eye out for atypical features that could be suggestive of this condition. A headache is the most common symptom reported in this patient population, and early diagnosis and management can significantly improve outcomes. Anticoagulation can also be used in CBT with a concomitant head bleed.
0: Well, thank you again, Dream, for taking the time to one, write this article and two, be with us on this podcast. This is definitely an important topic that we don't talk about often enough, and I don't think that we learn about often enough, or at least people as old as us haven't learned enough about it in residency. So thank you again for talking about it, bringing it to the forefront of our brain. And hopefully we will have you back again on this podcast sometime soon with another fantastic article. Thank you for having me. So moving on from diseases of the brain to diseases of the heart, today our critical ECG is, well, actually talking about diseases of the brain and not just the heart. This was a fantastic example of how ECGs can show us that.
1: Exactly. This ECG actually shows deep T wave inversions in their precordial leads or also known as cerebral T waves. These are rather deep. They're like 20 millimeters or more. They can also be present in limb leads, but not as prominent. And so CNS diseases can cause uh, several ECG changes, including in some cases, a prolonged QT. Those are some great pearls.
0: And moving on to our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma, we're talking about the montagia fracture.
1: It's always a good refresher on these uh, fracture patterns. As we all may remember, a montagia fracture is a fracture of the proximal ulna with an associated radial head dislocation. There's a classification system that divides these fractures into four categories, and it's dependent on the direction of the dislocated radial head. Type 1 is an anterior displacement, type 2 is a posterior, type 3 is lateral, and type 4 is a fracture of both the ulna and the radius with the anterior dislocation of the radial head. In pediatrics, type 1 is the most common finding, whereas in adults, type 2 is more common. The mechanism of these fractures' dislocations are generally related to direct trauma or some sort of an axial loading injury. It's important to remember that the dislocation of the radial head can sometimes be quite subtle, and we can pick it up using the radiocapitellar line by drawing a line through the radius to see if that line runs through the capitellum. And if it does not, then we know that the radial head is dislocated. And it's important to pick this up because we want to reduce these as soon as possible since it has functional implications. And in adults, they usually require some sort of an operative fixation. Those are some great pearls. And keeping up with our trauma vibe, the
0: critical image talks about a case of fall from standing, which is super scary and not like head injury scary. In this case, the patient fell from standing, striking their chin on a table, leading to hyperextension of the neck. Afterwards, they had bilateral arm pain, numbness, and they were just like a little weak, probably because they're in pain, maybe, or not. One, do you totally know where this is going, right?
1: Dun, dun, dun. Central cord syndrome.
0: Exactly. And that's definitely scary and can be missed so in patients 50 and older with preexisting spinal stenosis, those are our highest risk patients. The lack of injury on CT should not exclude this diagnosis and an MRI should be obtained. The goal is to get them to surgical decompression within less than 24 hours from the original injury. As almost happened in this case, arm weakness and pain can be incorrectly attributed to the original injury, which is falling, which is why repeat exams are helpful. The article is fantastic as usual, full of pearls and amazing images. So keeping up with even more trauma, that's a lot of trauma. Our critical procedure of this month is partial drainage of subcutaneous hematoma, which is not something we usually do, but sometimes we just need to do it because either the skin is under significant tension and we're concerned about skin necrosis or the patient is really uncomfortable. We must keep in mind that there's a risk of infection, which is theoretical, because there's not really data there, but most papers and experts recommend like a sterile technique, sterile saline. And then the other thing to keep in mind is after the procedure, a lot of people like to do compression to the area, if, you know, humanly possible, to stop the rebleed. Again, no evidence, but that's what people like
1: to do.: Oh, one of my friends just had one. And she needed her pre-tibial hematoma aspirated. So how do we do this, really?
0: So I thought that it's just a simple needle aspiration where you just put a needle, you aspirate. Turns out there's actually a little trick. Get a 16-gauge needle. You put it in a 50cc syringe. And then you slide a 10cc syringe into the space between the barrel and the plunger. And that way, you're having like constant negative pressure instead of hurting your own thumb while you're doing it. Um, it does sound a little weird when you say it, and there's an image that makes so much sense in this article. So definitely take a look. And just like we say almost every single month, ultrasound makes life so much easier.
1: Very cool in terms of the trick,
0: not the actual having of a hematoma. That is correct. So, for our LLSA review this month, it's about breastfeeding patients, and it's quite an interesting article by Black that was published in Annals 2020 called Managing the Breastfeeding Patient in the Emergency Department, addressing an admittedly lacking topic in formal emergency medicine curriculum.
1: Yes, agreed. This article talks about several important themes, including medications that are contraindicated, and when the often-advised pump-and-dump method is actually appropriate versus inappropriate.
0: Those are definitely things that we don't usually focus on. And sometimes I think we don't know just how these indiscriminate pump-and-dump advice can be quite harmful, both physically and psychologically.
1: Tell me more. Well, I think the first pearl that I took away from this is that Medications that are contraindicated in pregnancy are not always contraindicated in breastfeeding patients. And when we're trying to figure out, you know, the safety of medications with breastfeeding, we should consider several things. The concentration of the medication in the breast milk, if the drug can be absorbed orally by the infant, if the drug could interfere with the breast milk supply or even affect the taste of the breast milk, and thereby reducing the infant's desire to feed. I was just going to say, I have not
0: thought about that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So a few common questions that come up are often related to analgesia, since that's what we often you know, have to provide for our patients in the ED. So NSAIDs and short-acting opioids are fine with breastfeeding, and such as uh, with fentanyl and morphine. In terms of oral opioid analgesia, hydrocodone is preferred at 30 milligrams or less per day whereas oxycodone and hydromorphone should be avoided since those are longer acting. Another common question that comes up is related to imaging and specifically contrast. So radiation from x-rays and CAT scans are fine. So is contrast for CTs and MRIs. The only change is for nuclear medicine studies, which really depends on the specific isotope that is being used. VQ scans require a 13-hour interruption in breastfeeding, not actually pump and dump. Just simply pump and save the breast milk until the radioactivity has dissipated. It's a lot to remember, but the article recommends two particular resources that we can use to look things up, which is LactMed and infant risk.
0: Those are some fantastic pearls and definitely something we need to do better. So how about infectious diseases? Can the mom still breastfeed?
1: Yeah, in some cases. So if mom has an airborne illness, you would want to advise mom to pump rather than breastfeed because of course the risk of airborne transmission. Mastitis itself is not a contraindication unless there's an abscess associated with it. So in those cases, you would want to discard the breast milk for the first 24 hours of antibiotic treatment. Makes sense. Anything else? Well, the other aspect that we probably don't think about often is that newborns need to feed pretty frequently, every two to three hours. And I don't know about you, sometimes we also snack and feed that often in ED, but we don't remember (laughs) that the babies need to do it by somebody else. So if you're caring for a breastfeeding mother and they're in their ED for longer than two to three hours remember to figure out if you can provide breast pumps so that they can not interrupt their milk supply and result in complications such as mastitis.
0: That's a fantastic pearl and definitely something we can reach out to our other departments to help us out with and be considerate of our patient's needs. So keeping up with the smaller portion of this conversation, the baby, our clinical pediatrics this month is about ileocolic intussusception. And this case is a great reminder that not all vomiting in kids is just a viral illness. And that's kind of a throwback to our lesson from January of this year. This is a case of ileocolic intussusception. The typical picture is a healthy infant, six months to toddler age, who presents with acute onset of intermittent episodes of abdominal pain interspersed with asymptomatic periods. The other two elements that are classic, the bloody stools, currant jelly, and a poppable abdominal mass, sausage-like, present quite late. So we should not depend on that for the diagnosis. Also, why are these people so obsessed with food descriptions? <laughs> Another complicating factor is that the baby could present during the asymptomatic period, and that can be super tricky because you're like, well, the baby's fine. The diagnosis is using ultrasound, and the treatment is air enema, which is more successful than barium enema. If it fails, which that's around like 15% of the time, they would need surgery. If it's successful, then you just need to obs them, PO challenge them, and send them home.
1: Hopefully, it, we're successful, and then we're done. Yeah,
0: but Sometimes it's complicated by things like peritonitis, septic shock, hypovolemia. Then it's not that simple. Another thing to watch out for and definitely educate the parents about is that it's recurrent around 10 to 20% of people, usually within the first week. Any other pearls? We should have higher suspicion in kids with certain predisposing diseases, such as Meckles, lymphoma, Henoch-Schönlein purpura, cystic fibrosis, and nephrotic syndrome. And a whole bunch of other ones, but those are, I think, the more common ones
1: where you can have that leading point leading to that deception. Such great info. I can never get enough refreshers on these pediatric conditions. Which is why this is a fantastic segue to our
0: second lesson of the issue. The altered child, the approach to the pediatric patient with altered mental status. Thank you to doctors Jonathan Newsom, Megan Long, and Ipa Sangani for writing this article.
1: The differential for ultramental status in a child is quite broad, and the article definitely covers a potpourri of them. So I guess let's start with ultramental status in children with trauma. How do we use the Glasgow Coma Skill in kids? So Glasgow Coma
0: Scale should only be used in patients with trauma, really, and it has actually been modified for those two years and under to account for the development. For the eye portion, that's fine and unchanged. For the verbal response, if they're cooing and babbling, that would be the equivalent of a full score in an adult where they're, you know, oriented and making sense, followed by being irritable and crying, that's a four, crying to pain, that's a three, moaning to pain, that's a two, and one is not responding verbally. As for motor, following commands is replaced by purposeful movement at a six. The rest is
1: unchanged. I kind of want these verbal modifications for adults too.
0: I agree. <laughs> you know what? Let's change it from now on. That's it. I will write in my charts patient cooing and babbling. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that will go well. No,
1: agreed. <laughs> All right. So, unfortunately, the child had some sort of trauma. Uh, with concern of certainly head injury, how do we manage them if you're worried about herniation-elevated ICP?
0: Well, just like in adults, we think of hypertonic saline or mannitol. With kids, for the 3% saline, it's 5 cc per kilo. For mannitol, it's 0.25 to 1 gram per kilo. However, newer guidelines suggest that hypertonic saline may be better than mannitol. And of course, hyperventilation is a temporary option as well.
1: Outside of trauma, do head bleeds occur in pediatrics?
0: Yes. Not very commonly, but they do occur. The most common cause is AVM rupture. Aneurysms can happen as well and rupture, but that's less likely. The typical presentation is very similar to subarachnoid hemorrhage with a severe headache and so on. Another one is a cavernous hemangioma, which is a low-flow bleed with a subacute presentation. Kids can also have strokes, but they're quite rare, slightly more common in patients with like sickle cell disease, cancer, congenital heart disease, but overall, quite rare, thankfully. Something we also need to think about is that even if we don't have a history of trauma, we can have non-accidental trauma. And that is something we always got to think about with our kiddos.
1: That's true. What about some non-intracranial causes of ultraventil status? Well, the big one is infection, either
0: due to end organ damage from sepsis or septic shock, or it's a sneaky CNS infection like meningitis or encephalitis that we haven't really thought about. It's very important to think of cerebral abscesses in patients who are coming in with focal deficits, especially if they may have an untreated congenital heart disease. We are worried about infective endocarditis. They had a dental infection. The peak incidence is for Kids from four to seven years old, and they can also have like subdural empyema from an extension of a sinusitis or otitis media. A couple of other diseases that are worth mentioning in this population are toxic shock syndrome, and another one in preemies or ex is necrotizing enterocolitis. They can present
1: with just lethargy. Scary. So here's another tricky question: Do we have to image all kids with ultramental status? In a febrile seizure. So if it's a simple febrile seizure, no, we don't need to image those kids.
0: But if it's a complex febrile seizure, so they have a focal seizure or it lasted more than 15 minutes, then we should consider doing imaging. Got it. Any other differential we need to think of with ultramental status? Well, DKA is a really important one, which is why you should check people's fingers thick. The problem? is not just when the finger stick is too low and making them confused. In DKA, in kids, we have to be very careful so that they won't develop cerebral edema. There's quite a few risk factors for that. One is age less than three years old, and the other two are things that are under our control, which is giving insulin in the first hour of treatment a big no-no and using bicarb in the treatment regimen. Those make the child more likely to have cerebral edema.
1: Those are definitely good reminders. What about some other metabolic causes for ultra status?
0: Well, we can't really say pediatric and metabolic and not say inborn errors of metabolism. It's definitely a challenging diagnosis to make, especially since some of ED presentations can be precipitated by an acute infection, which can distract us and make us not realize that there's something else cooking on underneath. Some hints are like when a baby is vomiting, tachypnic, lethargic, like signs of acidosis. And the labs would show things like acidosis, hypoglycemia, and depending on the specific disorder, things like hyperammonemia, so more than 100 micromol per liter, ketosis, elevated lactate. There's a fantastic algorithm in the article that kind of helps us weed down which specific inborn error it is, and with the uh, lactates and ketones and whatnot.
1: Yes, definitely check out the algorithm. Speaking of hypoglycemia, any specific pediatric pearls? Well, in kids, hypoglycemia is considered
0: serum glucose below 50 milligrams per deciliter with or without symptoms. If they're altered, then we're not giving them anything oral. Let's give them some IV dextrose. It's going to be 10% dextrose, so D10, 3 to 5 cc's per kilo. Slightly differently than what we do for adults. Gotcha. What else are we missing? So as you pointed out, it's quite a wide differential, and we're not covering it all. Tox is definitely an important one, whether intentional or accidental, depending on the age. A few to be vigilant of are anticholinergics, cannabinoids, especially like accidental ingestion of edibles, salicylate, and opioids. And something also to think of is carbon monoxide poisoning.
1: This was a very thorough discussion, and the article has so much more pearls that I think all of us should review some more. Because again, the differential for ultramental status in kids is quite wide. Thank you, Donia, for taking us through some of these pearls, though. It was a great reminder for me that sickle cell, congenital heart disease, etc. are risk factors for potentially CNS injuries like strokes and even head bleeds can occur in kids. But commonly, we're thinking about things like infection, metabolic derangements, Specifically in DKA, we want to avoid giving insulin in the first hour and using bicarb since those are risk factors for development of cerebral edema. And if we are treating hypoglycemia, remember to give uh, 10% dextrose solution, D10, for serum glucose uh, less than 50 milligrams per deciliter with or without symptoms. So definitely check out the article for much, much more. That's a great summary.
0: For our drug box this month, we have acetazolamide.
1: Yeah, we're probably familiar with this medication and its use for glaucoma, altitude sickness, uh, but there are many other indications for its use too. It's a diuretic, a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, and it can be dosed in different ways depending on its indication. If used for altitude sickness, generally it's used as 500 to 1,000 milligrams per day divided Q8 to 12 hours if short-acting formulations, Q24, Q12 to 24 hours if long-acting. If using for altitude sickness prevention, just 125 milligrams BID can be used. In acute glaucoma, we want to give a loading dose of 250 to 500 milligrams followed by 125 to 250 milligrams every four hours. While it sounds like a quite benign medication, there are a lot of other side effects that we should counsel our patients on, including uh, paresthesias, nausea, even black feces, a metallic bitter taste, especially with co-ingestion of beer. And of course... That's
0: an important side effect for a lot of people, just saying.
1: Yes, exactly. And of course, uh, it can be associated with the development of metabolic acidosis and electrolyte changes that it should be monitored for. An important contraindication is sulfa allergy, in addition to, of course, if the patient has any sort of renal impairment.
0: That's a great refresher on acetazolamide. And last but not least is our tox box for this month, flaconide overdose. And I am so glad you are moving away from food products. I actually used flaconide for the first time, I think, last month. It's Ooh. a classic. I know. I was just like, wait, how do you even spell that? But, you know, I found it and I ordered it. So, it's a class 1C antiarrhythmic drug, which is a sodium channel blocker, and it has a high oral bioavailability with a peak at three hours post-ingestion. So, that's what made it suitable for this condition. It has a narrow therapeutic index, so overdoses can actually occur from just like dosing errors that are chronic, in addition to, of course, like the typical acute overdose. The ECG would show QRS widening in a prolonged PR, and the patients would be bradycardic, hypotensive. Treatment, just like with sodium channel blockers, would be sodium bicarb, and supportive with like pressors, pacing if needed. If the hypotension is refractory, then intravenous lipid emulsion can be used, and dialysis is absolutely not helpful. You can also think of ECMO for your sickest of patients. Now, if your patient is absolutely not on that spectrum and they're completely asymptomatic, just make sure to monitor them for six hours before sending them home. And now we can all use flecainide and recognize when they're overdosing. Yes. So thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this lesson with me. I learned a lot. Our dear listeners, I hope that you enjoyed listening to us as much as we have enjoyed recording this.
1: We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication in our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring.
0: Follow us on Twitter. My handle is at Donya Koja.
1: Mine is at EM underscore NCC.
0: Until next month.
1: Bye-bye.